You can join me in standing and turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. A friend of mine told me that it's never a good time to leave a good church, uh, but it's a good problem to have, and uh, this day I think is a testimony to that. Um, Looking forward to taking you through God's Word, so here now as he speaks to you through his holy, inspired, and life-giving word. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, and power, and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you are a God who speaks to us through your word, and we thank you that you have poured upon us the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ through whom we can come to understand and know the meaning of your word and apply it to our lives, and we pray that you would do this very thing in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. August 17th. 1662 is a day that we could say rightly lives in infamy. It was the Sunday preceding Bartholomew's day when Puritan ministers who refused to comply with the act of conformity were ejected from their pulpits. Uh, So in many Puritan homes, August 17th, 1662 was called Farewell Sunday as some 2,000 ministers departed from their service in the gospel ministry, one historian said that no Sunday in England ever resembled exactly that which fell on the 17th of August, 1662. And despite not knowing what awaited many of these Puritan ministers and all that they were leaving behind, Uh, It would have been apparent to all who sat under their preaching on that day that they were men who entrusted themselves fully to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, You wouldn't have heard on that day a single sermon bemoaning the binding of their consciences by this act from the English monarchy. Uh, You wouldn't have heard from them speak about the uncertainty of the future. No, they went into that day Uh, simply as their last Lord's Day in their respective pulpit. Uh, Viewing this and taking it as one last opportunity to preach the gospel of Christ to their people. 
And most of them, very few of the Puritan ministers at all actually, uh, didn't even acknowledge the significance of the day. They didn't even speak of it. Uh, But there was one man named Robert Seaton who had his last opportunity to impress upon his people the importance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he said this, And are we parting? Suffer, I beseech you, this word of exhortation. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. Two of Luther's wishes were that he might have seen Christ in the flesh and have heard Paul preach. But my brethren, what tongue can express the worth of their farewell sermons? And then he goes on to say this, And am I leaving you, my beloved and longed for? How gladly would I leave you all in the arms of Jesus Christ. Now I tell you this to say that this too is a farewell Sunday, not of the extent uh, as that Sunday in 1662, Uh, nor is it as sad as that Sunday in 1662, but rather it is a day of rejoicing and thanksgiving. It's a day in which we can celebrate uh, the work of the gospel, the continuing power of the church. And I know that as Zoe and I leave this place that we love, we do leave you all in the arms of Jesus Christ, with the best of shepherds, with the best of leaders. But what I want to do in our time this morning is simply look at this prayer of Paul's. It's a prayer that I think serves very well as a parting prayer, as it in many ways reflects our hope for this church our thankfulness for this church, and our strong confidence that we believe that this church is equipped with all the blessings of the gospel. And so, what I want us to look at this morning simply is that it's a prayer of thanksgiving, that it's a prayer for the knowledge of the hope that comes from Jesus Christ, and then lastly, it's a prayer for the power for the knowledge of power that comes from Jesus Christ. Uh, So look with me again at verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Uh, You may know that Paul's relationship with the Ephesian Christians was one of his strongest relationships Uh, The gospel goes forth in Acts 18 and 19 in this region of Asia Minor, and Paul spends three years teaching in Ephesus, reasoning and persuading daily in the hall of Tyrannus as he is preaching the good news of Jesus Christ until he's forced to leave uh, because of a riot that is ensued by results of his gospel preaching. But you know that in that time period, he spent hours upon hours with this congregation, equipping them, training up even future pastors. And now, four years have passed. Paul is on house arrest, and he takes up the pen to communicate with this church one last time. And if you've read Ephesians recently, you will know that this is one of the greatest works of the Apostle Paul. It describes in the most beautiful manner the benefits that we receive from Jesus Christ in the gospel. And Ephesians 1 already, if you were to simply glance through it, Paul sits down to write a sentence detailing all of our spiritual and heavenly blessings that were predestined long ago. 
And as he gets carried away, that sentence gets longer and longer, detailing our union with Jesus Christ, our predestination, our adoption, our sanctification, our heavenly inheritance. And so that sentence goes on and goes on until it hits 257 words. Uh, Such is the great doctrinal treatise at the beginning of the letter. But then Paul comes to a sudden stop, doesn't he? He turns to a prayer for this church in Ephesus. And where does he begin but to express his gratitude for the Lord's work in this church? He starts in verse 15 by saying, I have been hearing about you, Ephesians. Now, it's always interesting when somebody might tell you, I've been hearing things about you. Uh, You might kind of get taken back by it, thinking, oh no, what have you been hearing about me? Uh, But there is nothing of a rumor uh, that turns into a rebuke from Paul. It's a good report that leads to thanksgiving. What does he hear of this church? He hears of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's a good pastor. He wants nothing more than to hear of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That even though he is absent, imprisoned, Uh, kept at a distance from them, that they are still growing in their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they have uh, trusted in Him and are steadfast in their trust, that they're not wavering, they're not being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. No, uh, they are steady in faith towards the Lord Jesus Christ. They're continually looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith. They're holding fast to the word of life. And just as important as faith in the Lord Jesus, what also does he commend them for but their love for all the saints? Because when there is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is love for all the saints. You can appreciate that Paul says, not just some of the saints, not just a few of the saints, Now he says, all of the saints. Uh, Christians loving Christians uh, is natural. Uh, That we are drawn together by that common bond of Jesus Christ. That our love for Him, our faith in Him, uh, draws us to one another. And so it shouldn't be found in the church of Jesus Christ that we only love each other based on similar personalities. Or uh, like hobbies. No, Christians have a deeper bond than these temporal things. There's an eternal bond that is drawn by the Holy Spirit towards one another because we have all been recipients of God's grace. We have all come to understand that Jesus Christ is our Savior, one Lord, one baptism, one church. And what Paul finds among these believers in Ephesus is what Spurgeon said long ago, and that it's the dearest place on earth. The church of Jesus Christ, the dearest place on earth. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Love toward all the saints. You can't find that anywhere else on this earth than in the church of Jesus Christ. And this is the very thing that completes Paul's joy. That raises his soul into heaven with thanksgiving to our triune God. When he looks out and he hears that they are continuing steadfastly in the faith. Love towards all the saints. 
they, this just charges his soul in praise to God. Now consider for a moment the simplicity of this source of thanks, faith, and love. This is what makes Paul thank the Lord. He could have said so many other things that he had noticed about their congregation. Well, I heard a good report from your giving. It seems like it's up 10% over the last year. Uh, He could have even noticed that, oh, your church attendance has doubled in the last three years. I thank the Lord for that. And those are things you can certainly thank the Lord for. But his focus, his primary joy, what he desires to see get worked into all of the churches is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and love toward all the saints. And I want you to know that I leave Redeemer with the same prayer of thanksgiving for you all. I have seen, not just heard, but seen the steadfastness of your faith. And many of you going through the darkest of days, yet looking towards Jesus Christ. I've seen growth among our students where they are being built up in their most holy faith. Coming every Wednesday night and Sunday schools with great joy and encouragement in their faith towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And Zoe and I have personally received uh, this congregation's love toward all of the saints. Uh, we leave this church with great thanksgiving in our hearts. Uh, we thank the Lord for you all. Uh, because the Lord is so clearly at work among you. And the, these pews in front of me and this pulpit has been the dearest place on earth to me over these last five years. And so we do leave it with sadness. Uh, We don't want to leave in many ways, uh, but we know that we do not belong to ourselves, that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's simply our prayer as we do depart this place that your faith and your love toward all the saints would be all the more evident. So when I hear of you five years from now, I may say the same and thank the Lord Jesus Christ for his love for this church. So it is a prayer of thanksgiving, but it's a prayer for the knowledge of hope. Just a few month, months ago, we had a series in, on Wednesday nights uh, walking uh, the students through prayer, and uh, we simply took what is often said here on Sunday nights that you'll hear uh, perhaps this evening as we, that guides our prayer, that our prayer should be bold, brief, and biblical. And I like those terms, and I think they're helpful in, in actually uh, teaching us how to pray. And so we walked through each of those Bs uh, this summer and looked at different texts, how our prayers uh, should not be um, manipulative with our many words, but we should ask God with sincerity in our hearts. We shouldn't pray to be heard by others, uh, but we should pray in secret, and that our prayers should be bold. That we should know that Jesus Christ is praying for us, that we have a great high priest in heaven who lives to intercede for the saints, and so we can draw near with boldness to that throne room of grace. And then the last week, um, we looked simply at what does it mean to pray biblically? What does it mean to pray biblically? And I I helped them walk through uh, just three simple things that you can pray the scriptures, pray the promises, 
You know, the promises of God in Old and New Testaments are just asking to be prayed. Now, they're perfectly suited to be prayed, and so the old Puritans would uh, take those promises up as if they were in court and say, God, did you not say that you would do this? And how that is a perfect uh, form of prayer. Yeah, to pray the promises, pray the Psalms, the Old Testament, uh, prayer book, the song book of our Bible. Uh, the Psalms are ready to be prayed. And then we looked lastly at uh, we should pray with Paul. And pray with Paul because all throughout his letters are contained prayers. Prayers of, of great spiritual significance. Uh, not only do these kinds of prayers that we are looking at here in our text this morning help us to pray, guide us to pray, but they, uh, in a lot of ways, teach us what we should pray, uh, the kinds of content. And uh, so we simply looked at praying with Paul And if you want depth and diversity in your prayer life, pray with Paul. Notice how different Paul's prayer from Ephesians 1, uh, 17, how different that looks than our prayers often look. Listen to this, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. What is Paul praying for? He's praying for the Spirit's work in their lives, giving them wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ. What a prayer. What a petition. He doesn't pray for travel mercies that we so often pray for. He doesn't pray for material blessings that we so often pray for. Those are good things to pray for. But notice the the depth, the the primary thing he wants to see continue to be worked out in this church's life is that they would grow in the knowledge of Christ. Have you ever prayed for that for another person? Have you ever prayed for that for yourself? The reason why Paul prays is because he knows that eternal life is knowing the Father and the Son. He knows that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge. And that in light of the surpassing, knowledge, uh, the surpassing value of knowing Christ, all else is counted loss. Uh, Paul knows that there is nothing better for a Christian to do than to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, knowing Christ is eternal life. It's the prize and privilege of being a Christian. But it's not a general knowledge of Christ that he's after. It's not a scholastic or academic mere apprehension of Christ, but it's the knowledge of Christ's person and work. It's knowing Him personally and knowing His work and how we are blessed by it. He prays specifically that the Spirit would give them a knowledge of their hope. Uh, This is the knowledge that he is praying for. Look at verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints? Uh, I wonder if you have ever uh, just stopped and considered how grand and great a hope we have as Christians. It's a hope that Christians are called to sovereignly by God and the Holy Spirit. A hope that was 
purchased for us by the blood of the one who called us. It's a hope that we have as Christians that goes beyond even the every morning mercies that we receive each day and it extends all the way to our heavenly home. Do you know what this hope is? Uh, Paul says in Romans 15 that God is a God of hope. And he fills us with joy and peace. Peter says that we have been born again to a living hope. A hope that will never dim or die out. We will never be put to shame by this hope. Because the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Hope is such a vibrant theme in the New Testament. It's such a wonderful manifestation of the Holy Spirit that hope is being produced in our hearts as we come to know Jesus Christ all the more. And we know, of course, that we hope for all kinds of things in this world. We hope for a sunny day. We hope that we will see someone again. Many of us last night hoping that the Rangers would win. Uh, But my prayer is that you would take hold of your eternal hope. uh, That you would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. An inheritance that Peter says is imperishable. It doesn't fade away. It, it, It won't go away. It's undefiled. It can't be tampered with. It's unfading. It's kept in heaven for you. That's the hope that you have as Christians. It's an eternal hope. You know, this world will tell us that there is not much to actually hope for. I don't think you could ever turn on the news and expect to see a hope-filled message by what's going on in this world. But the gospel of Jesus Christ presents us with a different point of view, doesn't it? We can be afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We can be perplexed by the things of this life, but not driven to despair. We can be struck down time and time again, but not crushed. Why? Because we have a hope that is in us. The hope that our Lord has called us to in Jesus Christ. And these, this hope comes from the riches of His grace and that The work of the Holy Spirit is to be the down payment of that hope, testifying to it, bearing witness to it. I pray that you would know this hope. One of the more overlooked aspects of the Reformation was the Reformation in France. Among the French Huguenots, during the early days of the French Reformation, churches were being planted And the nation was seeming to turn towards a more biblical and reformed faith. At one time, during a seven-year period early on, there were almost 3,000 churches planted. It was all taking off, but it came under fire from the monarchy as edicts were issued and pastors were imprisoned for their faith, and many of them even being slaughtered on the massacre known as Bartholomew's Day. And while you can understand that there seemed to be a a time when evangelical fervor was growing in power and dominance in France, it seemed to all but vanquish under these persecutions. Uh, The Huguenots were were forced uh, to worship publicly, but 
in secret. And so they would have these portable pulpits that they would make out of wine barrels that they could easily collapse and make it look like something else. And they would have communion sets that they could take on the run just in case the authorities came to track them down. And everything about what was going on among the Huguenots uh, would seem to cry out that this was a people without power, that they had no prestige, that that was all, in a way, taken from them. But we know, don't we, that the Lord's power is made perfect in weakness. And that's the next thing that Paul prays for these Ephesians to know. And it's the next thing that I want you to know. Is to grasp the very resurrection power. The very ascension power that was at work in Jesus Christ. That is now at work in His church. Look at verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. Now, kids, how much power is immeasurably great power? Well, if you say, I don't know, you can't measure it, you'd be very right. The Greek word for immeasurable is the same root that we get for our word hyperbole. It's far exceeding. In a way, Paul is trying to get them to, to grasp the unsearchable boundaries of God's divine power toward us who believe. You can't search it out. You can't sound it out. You can't find its width or its depth or its length or its breadth. The far surpassing working of his might. And he wants them to know and to grasp and appreciate the omnipotence of God. Uh, But you notice that he locates this power toward us who believe in Christ's resurrection. Look at verse 20, uh, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand to the heavenly places. Uh, What Paul is saying is that resurrection power is at work in his church. Resurrection power is what is available to Christians. You know, I've really enjoyed our study of the Gospel of John over the last uh, several months and and just how many instances there are of, of tremendous displays of power by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you can think early on with him being able to turn water into wine. You can think about how it's just with the official son that he utters a few words and his son is healed at the end of John 4. Go, your son will live. And then the paralytic in John 5, what does he have to say to make that man who was lame all of his life get up? He says simply, get up. And then recently we looked at the raising of Lazarus Uh, something that no human could possibly do on this earth. Uh, What does Jesus have to say to make him rise again from the dead? Lazarus, come forth. Such few words, but such great power. Uh, Friends, this is the power of God. Uh, The Son of Man had authority to lay down his life and take it up again. It didn't matter 
that he was dead for three days. It didn't matter that there was a tomb rolled over, or there was a, a stone rolled over the tomb. It didn't matter that there were many guards out there surrounding. When Jesus Christ came to life, he came to life. And nothing could stop it. Nothing could prevent that power from being displayed. All just with a simple word. Just like the heavens and the earth were created. Just with one little word, God creates universes. It's not only, of course, this resurrection power that's at work in us that Paul wants us to see. But it's, notice how he speaks of Christ's ascension above all earthly powers in verse 21. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So Paul's saying that Jesus Christ was raised victoriously from the grave. Sin had no hold over him. Death had no hold over him. But it's not just that resurrection that we see a tremendous display of power. We see it in the ascension when God raised him up to his right hand and seated him in the heavenly places where he rules over all creation. Think about how wonderful this is. This ascended Christ who has taken up his reign in heaven. Far above all rules and authorities and powers and dominions. Far above all mayors and governors, presidents, kings and emperors. Above all the spiritual principalities, all angels and archangels, demons and the devil. He is above them all. That Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And no authority in this life or in the life to come can prevent his power from being worked upon his church. No dominion can outlast him. No rule can overthrow him. No authority can supersede him. Christ is ruling from the throne of heaven. And it's remarkable because this is the same Jesus Christ who came in a lowly and gentle manner for sinners. That the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, suffered on behalf of sinners as their Savior. He was the one who was gloriously raised above all. Our Savior sits at God's right hand. And so there's power in His resurrection. There's power in His rule over all the earth. But then you see, lastly, that His power displayed in His reign over the church. Look at verse 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, it could be easy to lose the point here as Paul has been taken away by reflection of Christ's power. Uh, but he, you must remember that Paul wants the Ephesians to grasp the immeasurable Greatness of his power toward us who believe. This isn't just raw power for raw power's sake. It's not just showing off. This is what Christ did for his church. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven on behalf of his church. He wants us to know that there's nothing that Christ cannot do. His arms are not too short To save. The power is all there in Jesus Christ. And here is 
the beautiful thing. That because Christ is ascended to the right hand of God the Father, and he has been established as king and head of his church, that we are members of his body. That we are united to the one who is risen, ruling, and reigning. I hope you grasp the power that is at work in God's people. Power that can defeat every sin. A power that can sustain you all the way to your heavenly home. There's power in Jesus Christ. And there is therefore an immediate connection to the one who has all power through our faith and union with him. Uh, But I don't want you to miss that last phrase. Uh, He says, the church is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. Uh, Now, in what sense can uh, we be the fullness as the church, the fullness of the one who fills all in all? Uh, What does that phrase mean? Uh, In other words, how can the church be the fullness of the one who is self-sufficient? We'll consider the metaphors that we hear all throughout Scripture between Christ and His church. Christ is the head. We are His body. He is the shepherd. We are His sheep. He is the bridegroom. We are His brides. And as we think about those things, a shepherd is not a shepherd unless he has sheep. A vine, it doesn't really function rightly if if there are uh, no branches, uh, the head finds full expression in the body. Of course, we understand and know that Christ is self-sufficient. But in the way that he has predestined this world to go, his redemptive purpose and plan is that Christ would have a church. And that he is the savior of sinners. That he is the head of the body. And I wonder if you have ever recently marveled at the wonder of Christ's everlasting union with your soul. And that's what Paul is being taken up with here. That we are his body, he is the head. That we are forever united in a spiritual marriage that will never be broken. And that will never have its bonds bursted. This is our Union with Jesus Christ. He is the head. We are his body. What a prayer. Paul takes up a simple petition that they would grow in knowledge. And he gets carried away just like he did in the first part of Ephesians 1. Carried away with the glorious realities of the hope to which we have been called. The inheritance, the glorious inheritance in the saints. And then that great immeasurable power that is at work within the church. And I hope you know that I leave you all with the same prayer. I pray that you would know your hope to which he has called you. I pray that you would know and grasp and understand the immeasurable power that is at work within you toward us who believe. And I certainly thank God that he has placed me over these last five years in such a church that has exercised faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and love toward all the saints. And so this is a day of great 
joy and rejoicing for me because I am thankful to God for you all, for his kindness of putting you all in my life and receiving me with honor as a young Timothy in your midst. And I pray that I've been of some use to you over these last few years. I pray that I've been of some spiritual benefit to your souls, that you have seen Jesus Christ by this ministry, that you have benefited from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so am I leaving you? Yes. But I would gladly leave you all in the arms of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, oh, to pray like the Apostle Paul who explored such great spiritual depths as we have seen in this text. We simply take up Paul's prayer that you would help us to grasp, to understand, to know in the fullness of Jesus Christ our hope and the power that is at work within us. Guide us all the way home, we pray, Lord. Amen.